from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined by a uh, former guest, and he's uh, agreed to come back. We've got some exciting new stuff to talk about uh, European law, and you wonder why this matters with cybersecurity, but it's uh, European data privacy, and we're going to have a bit of a hypothetical discussion throughout the program today. Uh, Nothing here that's offered on this uh, by myself, who's not an attorney, or by my guest, Van Lindbergh, who is an attorney, is legal advice. This is not legal advice. These are hypothetical discussions. Um, And uh, some background on these new European data privacy rules. Van, thank you for uh, joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so GDPR, what does this new acronym stand for? It stands for the General Data Protection Regulation, which is designed to enable individuals to better control their own data and the way in which it's used by companies, both those who they directly work with, and this is where it reaches a lot more people, the companies that subcontract or work with other companies for the processing of that data. Yeah, so if we rewind back in the the world of of EU data privacy, and EU being the European Union, and it's somewhat different uh, from like an American federal law where you have one government that passes a law that gets rolled out across all 50 states. In the EU, you have a collective of nations with, uh, they've agreed to operate under this EU agreement, and they'll pass legislation, laws, right laws at the European Union level across the group of nations there, and then they all roll it out individually into the country. So um, help our audience understand this safe harbor things that they may have heard about, Privacy Shield, GDPR, and just how does this flow through out into the EU in general? So I think the way to start is by thinking about the difference between the way Europeans think about personal privacy and think about the rights of citizens and consumers versus the United States. In the United States, we have a long history of saying that almost anything goes when it comes to contract. You, while there are some, there are some restrictions on that that have been developed over years. In general, we have a lot of freedom for almost any sort of business to go in and to deal with people and to deal with their information and to try and create value out of it. As long as there is proper proper notice, i.e. they're going to tell you more or less what they're going to do, and that there's some sort of exchange of value, they will, you get some value out of whatever they're doing. By and large, U.S. regulators have been hands-off. So if I was a social network and you and I and and then you as a consumer signed up for my social network and I collected all sorts of information about you so I could serve you very relevant advertisements totally fair inside the US in general. Absolutely. And this is important because this is largely the business model for the internet is collecting information, packaging it up, slicing and dicing it and making sure that you can provide relevant advertisements. Now, this is true worldwide, but the EU takes a very different 
take on the rights of their citizens. And they've always been much more privacy-focused than the United States. And so they used to have they used to have a lot of agreements between the United States and various countries in the EU focused on how you can make sure that EU citizens have the proper protections. And so you would have there for a long time we were under something called the safe harbor, which is that if you had you you had a certain level of privacy protections under uh, underneath our laws and in your contracts, then you were okay to transfer information back and forth. And this enabled a lot of cross-border digital commerce, a lot of what they would call a processor and it versus a, a controller, people doing various stuff with the data in all sorts of different jurisdictions. Yeah, if I was a, a U.S.-based e-commerce company and I wanted to be able to ship product to people in Europe and, and I wanted to have European citizens be able to sign up for my e-commerce service, share their information with me, and and be able to purchase goods off of my website, I could do that with a safe harbor agreement. That's right. The uh, You could also, if you, even if you were a purely European company and you wanted to use a U.S. Uh, a US credit card processor like Stripe, or you wanted to use a U.S. backup company, or you wanted to use any, any sorts of un- underlying business service, you would also need these sorts of, of contractual provisions. Yeah. Uh, that, you also had things called model clauses, which were agreed upon specific contractual language that had to be included word for word that governed some of the transfers between data. Well, a couple years back, someone sued Facebook from Ireland where they said, you know what, these this safe harbor is not sufficient to gar- guarantee my rights as a, as an EU citizen that everyone has agreed upon. And to a lot of people's surprise, this person actually succeeded. Yeah, so this went up to the, the European Court of Justice, which is kind of the equivalent of the European Supreme Court. Yes, for, for these sorts of transnational issues. That's correct. And so this essentially invalidated a lot of this pre-existing safe harbor and for a, a series of months there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of what could you do because the existing legal framework for for handling these sorts of transnational data tra- uh, transfers was that there wasn't anything yeah there effectively was not a digital trade agreement between even countries in the eu and each other on how they should handle it if i if i was france and i was storing german citizen data or vice versa or even outside the eu to the u.s or other places uh yeah so we, we sat in limbo here until this u.s eu privacy shield was was drafted and then put into law exactly and the privacy shield is a a little bit different, a little bit more stringent, but it puts in place some of the same types of arrangements. But all of that was really a preface to the GDPR, which was negotiated over a series of years. It was uh, put ratified in early 2016 and is going to be effective throughout the EU on May 25th, I believe, of, tw- of this year, of 2018. And that is a big day because already a number of these data protection authorities are starting to either prepare companies for the ways in which they are going to enforce it, or they've started writing regulations that are preparatory for the enforcement of the GDPR. 
And this is a very big deal for anyone who does business even indirectly with a citizen of the EU. Yeah, so then this is some of the difference between Europe and the, the U.S. on this. If In the U.S., if a federal law gets passed, typically federal rules are written and there's a federal agency that would enforce it. So we just passed a major tax overall here. The IRS is a federal agency. They're going to write rules about that, and then the IRS will be responsible for enforcement of that new tax bill. Where in the EU, my understanding is EU drafts these GDPR law, and then each country has its own enforcement agency that's going to go handle the enforcement. That'd be the equivalent of, I guess in the U.S., the feds drafting something and then a state drafting their own rules and their, and having their own enforcement agency for it. That's right. The, the EU has this interesting point, counterpoint, the, uh, the, this push, both for, both for centralization and for uh, individual sovereignty. And that results in so, sometimes you get a push toward more centralization, and sometimes you have uh, various com- countries saying, well, we really want to have the final say on how this applies to our citizens. And so where the original legislation was drafted so there would be a single GDPR enforcement authority, that's not where it ended up for reasons of sovereignty. You re- there may be a lead GDPR enforcement agency and other other agencies are supposed to take their follow their lead or take take the things that they say and implement them. You really need to deal with each individual enforcement agency and who you may be dealing with ends up being a country specific matter. Yeah. So this uh, so folks have had a couple of years now to look at GDPR and look and see where and, and how this is going to be set up and enforced. So uh, with this time and background, uh, and this is, I think, still for most U.S.-based business owners, a fairly new topic to them to think about this. So if I'm over here in in the U.S., um, why would this be relevant to me? To a first approximation, approximation if you either do business with and where it's available worldwide, even incidentally, or you do business with people who do business worldwide, even incidentally, then as written, the scope of the GDPR applies to you. Because it is not about where your company is, and it's not about where you do business or where you are organized. It is because it is designed to be tied to the rights of European, uh, European Union citizens it is actually about who your customers or your customers' customers are. If you end up doing business with someone in the EU, then the GDPR applies to that. It applies to you because of that transaction. Or if you are a service provider to, to someone who does or potentially does business in the EU, again, it's going to apply to you at least to some extent. So to, to a first approximation, if you are a company that has business over the internet or has significant commercial contracts, you need to be thinking about the GDPR. 
Yeah. And you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and we're talking about the EU data privacy uh, on this program. I'm joined by Van Lindbergh, who's uh, an attorney here in San Antonio and uh, one who reads up on this. Um, and uh, as attorneys will say, they're always practicing, they're always learning more. So I might call him an expert. He may not call himself an expert yet. But uh, I think uh, between the, the two of us, we, we know enough about this, uh, hopefully, where I can ask some good questions and we can have uh, some insightful discussion. If you uh, are just joining us on air right now during the broadcast, you can listen to this in full. If you're not able to uh, stay around during the evening uh, on iTunes podcasts or Pocket Cast or any other podcasting service across the internet, we also have a YouTube channel uh, as well as a, a Facebook and a Twitter page for CyberTalk Radio. Um, we post up the rebroadcast and replays every Tuesday after our episodes air on Saturday evenings. So uh, Van had gone through and, and given kind of the background of how we arrived at GDPR from uh, Safe Harbor and Privacy Shield and, and the background on where the EU is organized. So now I'm here in the, the U.S. I'm a business. Let's say, I mean, I make um, T-shirts and I'm making T-shirts and I'm selling them on my own e-commerce website and I have people come in that there are EU citizens, or I assume they might be because they're ordering with a European credit card and they have a European address that I'm shipping this out to. Um, so as a t-shirt maker, what am I going to need to think about this GDPR? Maybe because I'm going to store a list of all of my customers in my system and I, I'm pretty sure they're consumers because maybe I'm making band t-shirts or other things where I, these are orders going to individuals, not orders going to businesses over there. So in that case, you definitely are the, the, any information that you're holding that can be used to identify somebody is going to come under the scope of the GDPR. And you are going to have the, you're going to be required to, to manage it and comply with, with GDPR processes and rules in terms of how you hold it and what you do with it. And you're going to need to be a little bit more explicit in terms of your agreements with what you say to your various customers. Say, for example, you've got, uh, you, you've got information associated with people, people's size, their address, their, some of their, I don't know, very, various personal information. You're already going to need to apply certain sorts of protections associated with protecting the financial data. A lot of times people think of the PCI uh, compliance. That's focused on preventing fraud, preventing the loss of the credit card information. To a first approximation, you're going to need to do a, have a lot of those same or even more stringent things associated with the protection of the identities and the information that can be used to identify the particular people who are in your database. Yeah. Now, I mean, I think the, the one that I've been reading about on this that most folks are um, a little bit up in arms about is this uh, the right to be forgotten, uh, which is tied to GDPR, but is also maybe even some of the individual countries in Europe have written some individual laws about this. Um, can you explain this concept about the right to be forgotten? And and what if I got a notice from uh, an EU individual citizen said, forget me out of your system, wipe all of my records out in your system? What, what am I going to have to do there as a business? Say I'm that t-shirt ship manufacturer still, screen printing shop. So... 
this again comes with comes from the EU perspective of the ultimate right of consumers to control the use of their data. And it came up in especially when people had people had various uh, unflattering things that were posted about them on the internet. And one of the rights that was recognized by various countries and is now uh, roughly enshrined into the GDPR is this ability to say, I want those negative things about me to be taken off the internet. And it doesn't really matter who is holding them. It really matters that they are about me. And because they are about me, I have, a, I have certain rights to that information, in particular the right to have it not be disseminated. Uh, because this is, a, is really about the, the dissemination and the, the manifestation of information, the, uh, this has been broadly called the right to be forgotten. And it really came up in the context, frequently in the context of either social media or, or website search engines especially. But then people said, you know what, I can see that you complied, you removed the particular link, but you can still see it elsewhere, other places, or you still have a cached copy. And so the courts went a little bit further and they said, well, what about backups and cached copies and all sorts of things? And it has evolved into a fairly substantial right for certain people to go back and say, remove me from your, from all of your systems. Now, if you're the t-shirt manufacturer, that's probably going to be easier to do uh, because you've got a list of customers. What you can do is you can say, delete that, partic delete that particular customer, uh, alternatively zero out their information and replace it with yeah. a dummy, you know, deleted uh, yeah. information if, you, if that's what's required by your database, for example. Yeah, and and if let's say though, uh, say I have relatives over in Europe that are European citizens, and I'm the customer, and I shipped a T-shirt to that person in Europe, so you might have to, like even the T-shirt manufacturer may be able to look at their customer database, all of their shipping destinations, which might not even be their customer, and they're going to have some second order information. But if you're a social network, this gets much more complicated. That's right, and the right to be the right to be forgotten is not. Uh, not absolute. It depends upon for, for what reason you originally uh, uh, you originally had the need to collect the information. For example, there's an absolute ability. There's an absolute right to opt out of direct marketing, uh, but it, organizations may continue to process data if the data remains necessary for the purposes for which it was originally collected, and this is one of the things that is going to be most useful for, for example, for backups as opposed to a cache. If you have a need to maintain business integrity or auditability, and that is the reason for which certain information was collected, then as long as you don't expose that information, that's one way in which the right to be forgotten may not require you to actually restore all your backups and delete that individual person uh, on that t-shirt example so if i collected their information initially so i could process a purchase and then i kept their shipping address because that was required to send them the t-shirt under the right to be forgotten do i not have to forget them maybe so this is where this all seems like a really complicated gray area to a, a non-attorney here well i think that even for a lot of attorneys it's still a complicated gray area okay that's good the 
I think that a lot of what people are saying is that it depends on the purpose. For example, let's say that you had a, you also, when someone signed up for, uh, signed up for your t-shirt, they also collected a little thing that said, and you can send me periodic marketing, marketing about future t-shirt sales. Yeah. Probably you would need to, if someone said, I would like you to stop that, you have an op- they have an absolute right to opt out of that sort of marketing. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if what you need to do on an ongoing basis is make sure that you did not uh, have a fraudulent transaction, and so you need to maintain certain records about the actual purchases that they made, Yeah. well then, again, you, you may ha- be able to maintain those so that for that legitimate purpose, uh, especially if that was was provided to them at the time of purchase yeah and this is is interesting is in the in the u.s i think is most folks that do digital marketing uh are aware of what's called the can spam act um and requirements around allowing for opt-out on email there and different restrictions on where and how you can collect email addresses uh and the GDPR doesn't exactly align with it, uh, so you, it's a you, lot more stringent. Yeah, it's it's much more stringent, um, and and it, and and set up in a different way. So you end up with organizations having to incur a significant amount of overhead in order to set up business systems to handle one set of regulations or another set of regulations. And even in the U.S., we have a little bit of this. California has different data privacy laws than the rest of the country. Um, they have some more stringent laws. Massachusetts is another state with some pretty stringent uh, data privacy laws for residents of those states. So uh, in the U.S., we're not immune to creating regulatory conflict either. But, I mean, from a, a small business perspective, this all seems pretty overwhelming. I think that I think that for a lot of businesses, particularly if you are dealing with stuff, your the T-shirt example, there are ways in which you need to think about this. It needs to be on your radar. Where it becomes a lot more difficult is if you're starting to deal with either social networking or marketing, where you're dealing, where your business is people to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, when you go there, you've got a lot thornier issues that are going to take a lot more time to work out. Yeah. And so as I think as we uh, dive into this some more after the break, we can talk some hypotheticals on the enforcement side and uh, just a little bit of a, a teaser lead in. If if I was China, I have some pretty clear ways to enforce my laws on, on the internet on con- companies that operate servers outside of China. I've got the Great Firewall and I can control access to those systems for my citizens. Um, Russia's got some similar things. Some other countries have done certain things to control access to the internet from their citizens and and control businesses being able to go into and operate inside of those countries. The EU doesn't have anything like this, and I'm not aware of any EU member state right now that has any sort of border-level internet filters um, to handle a U.S.-based internet operation and to block their citizens from connecting out to it i i don't i'm not aware of anything like that either i think that that would actually be con contrary to some of the agreements that they've got uh especially in t- either with the u.s or with inside the eu but what they've done is they eventually effectively have what we'd call in the u.s a long-arm statute that says 
if you're going to transact with our citizens, then you have availed yourself of our laws and our protection, which means that even if you're someplace else, our laws apply. Yeah. Now, it, it, it's an interesting one, and the, the U.S. gets beat up about that. It's like we've done on the, the tax bill and the tax changes here. Um, the U.S. was the only comp- uh, country, major country, that taxed foreign income before. Um, now that's sort of getting undone and unwound, while the EU is actually sort of uh, creating foreign privacy oversight on people that operate around the whole world if you want to interact with EU citizens over the internet. So we've got tax things going one way, um, and we've got privacy legislation going the other direction. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break here for the news, traffic, and weather update at the bottom of the hour. And I will be back with Van Lindbergh while we will continue talking about data privacy and how that affects uh, your business here in the U.S. when you're interacting with European citizens. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Joined this week by Van Lindbergh. Uh, we're talking about data privacy laws, uh, specifically as they relate to the European Union and the new GDPR, which is going to go into effect a little bit later this summer. Uh, in this segment of the program, uh, we're going to dive into some of the different terms. If you've not heard of a controller or a custodian or a processor before, uh, and you do business with Europe, or if you have customers that do business with Europe, uh, stay tuned and learn more about this and how it will um, impact your business and what you need to be thinking about when you're storing information on a European citizens. So, Van, thanks again for joining us this week to uh, talk about this uh, topic. And it's uh, one in the cybersecurity world. Um, we're often so much talking about hackers and the rest of these things, but much of uh, cybersecurity uh, really ties into data privacy and the custody of information and how you uh, track and control uh, and allow access to and then what you ultimately decide to do with that information under the different laws as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you that, that you talk about the hackers and, and the misuse of information. To a certain extent, a lot of this was designed to, to, to help various citizens deal with that issue. I mean, it also has a lot of restrictions upon what commercial entities can do with your data, but there are significant protections associated with not having your identity stolen and not having your uh, your information uh, ex- your your information exfiltrated by various people who would who would want to do you harm. Yeah. So as we we go through um, this and, and we're talking about data privacy. Uh, Let's go through some of the terms that help people understand in data privacy. What does this mean? Um, so, as a you have a, a citizen there, the user. This is the the one who has that personally identifiable information, and then you're sharing it with businesses, and those businesses have different roles. That's right. So, then the number one thing that you want to talk about 
is this idea between a controller and a processor. Now, companies may be controllers for some for some types of data and for some purposes and processors for others. Now, the way to think about it is to go back to the underlying your your sense of what those words mean. A controller is someone who's going to be making the decisions about what happens with the data. They're the ones who have the who have the business need. They're the ones who are frequently interacting with the uh, in, interacting with the the data, or sometimes with the customer itself. Although you can have subsidiaries who are also controllers. The primary thing to think about if you're a controller is: Are you making the decisions about what happens with the data? A processor is someone who does something with the data, uh, stores it, stores it, you know, correlates it does whatever does whatever with it uh, under the direction of a controller so for example if you are let's say if i was an email provider and i and my customer is the controller of their email inbox and they're the controller of their email domain they decide which email normally to keep and not keep which email they're going to delete and how they manage all that information inside that email inbox well you're saying they they control it but again anyone anytime you've got a um you've you've got eu citizens they're going to be in the role of user yeah uh and so even if they have some sort of control what you're talking about is extending their control that doesn't make them the controller that means that they're the ones that have the right a right of control that is going to be enforced through the controller, through the processors. So in that sort of situation, uh, probably the primary controller is going to be the uh, is going to be the email service provider, because they're the ones that are making decisions about how that how that various how that data is going to be used and managed in the context of the email system. Yeah. So let's I mean take this out to a, a hypothetical here. This sounds kind of complicated for maybe an email provider but if i was an eu citizen could i email or could i send notice to an email provider saying i don't want my personal information transmitted by your email platform by anybody so i'm revoking your rights to transmit my personal information to and from anyone on your email platform so i think that that what you can't see is me squirming right here because I don't think that it is, it ends up being as cut and dry because what you're asking implicitly is how can the, uh, to control the actions of third parties. Now what you can control is the ability to represent or, or represent that data or have it available. But I, I don't think that there's any reasonable way to say no one is someone mentions Brett Pyatt in an email. Oof, we're not delivering that email. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like as you get into spam filtering and email filtering and email content filtering, uh, it does, is this going to require email providers to go all the way out to the macro level of their whole system and that they won't receive or send email that contains information about an individual EU citizen that says, I don't want my information transmitted via email. I think what you need to do is you need to step back and say, what is the role of the, 
of the company that you are addressing. And you need to say, in the, in the realm of which you control data, in which you are a controller, that's the realm in which you have the right to absolutely ask them to respect and to not have anything to do with your private data. So for example, you can ask that your own personal information be deleted and it be finally deleted. Uh, I think that that is going to be, yeah, that, that, that will definitely come in the realm of the sorts of things that, are, that will be required. Can you, can you require that any sort of secondary service providers that were taking information that included your information that they remove it, uh, particularly if that was going to be used for a for an advertising or targeting purpose, probably. Can you say, I want you to proactively filter anything that, a, any email that someone talks about me and remove that? I don't think that you can say that, although I can see where you're asking that question because of the broader context of, hey, what about caches of information where people were saying negative things about me online yeah and the requirement to remove that i think that the difference is is between private communication and public communication in a public communication in the for example in the search engine sense yeah i think they have been various people have been successful in getting courts to say no you must delist that information and, and other copies of that information and caches of that information. Yeah, hence the dark web now, where there's all of this information that's out there on the internet that's no longer inter- indexed by major search engines. But I think that the the public nature of that information is is part of what makes that enforceable. I don't think that you, I I don't think that even the European courts would ever get to the place where there's a prior restraint on individuals. Who, right to express themselves in a private forum yeah and then this is it's an interesting gray area and that email provider they may come back and say you know what i'm not actually the controller i'm only the processor here my customers are the controllers i don't control what they send and receive i stay out of that i just provide them a mailbox and i provide them a delivery platform so hmm yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this all sorts out. And, and I think you'll see different companies take different stances here on how they view it. I think that that's absolutely true. Part of what I'm thinking through here is you you always want to go to go to the place where you think about how are the regulators, how are the judges going to think through this issue? Yeah. And so the fact that you can make an argument you have to filter that through how likely is that argument to be accepted and the experience that uh, that various companies have had with the european courts is that unlike the us uh, the us and this gets back to some of the differences in in the way eu courts and us courts have have addressed this historically yeah is that for purposes of data protection and protection of privacy, the EU courts have not shied away of finding some sort of responsibility, even when, even when companies have tried to distance themselves from the ability to, uh, that, from some sorts of responsibility in order to try and make the regulatory burden a little lighter. Yeah. 
So let's go into another area here. So the email provider, I think, creates a, a great gray area on how to think about that one. But let's say say my business is an information broker. So in the U.S., there's tons of these. You can go online. You can say, "I'd like to I'd like to buy information about twenty thousand residents of San Antonio with in this age range, this ethnicity, this income level," and I can go online and I can buy name, address, phone number, email address, um, how many years they've lived at the address. I can buy all sorts of information about U.S. citizens. If I'm an EU citizen, let's say I also happen to be in that database, and I send a request to this information broker saying, remove me from your system, um, how does GDPR look at, at that request coming in from an EU citizen? I think that they're going to be ex- very generous in terms of their... A court would be very generous in terms of their expansive view of what sorts of, of protections are going to be given to the EU citizen. Let me give you an example of that in terms of ways in which this is really going to concretely affect various businesses. Companies regularly engage in different sorts of processing, different sorts of business ideas with, with, with customer data. And in the U.S., you frequently have some sort of thing that says, we may from time to time engage with some of our partners to offer you better goods or services, blah, yes. blah, blah, blah. What that means in English, my understanding as the not attorney, is that we're going to share your information with other people that might want to sell you stuff. Yes. And they're not really limited on, at least under U.S. law, as long as they say that and it's somewhere in the the, the, the checkboxes that creates you a big to. tent. Yeah. Yes. There are lots of things that they can do. For the GDPR, you have to get explicit knowing consent for each separate type of, of a, information affiliate, processing. Yeah, affiliate processing or affiliate transaction or related party transaction. And it's for and it's not just, hey, we're listing all the different types of things that we, we do. It is that you need to have explicit affirmative consent. All right, we are putting right in front of your face, this is the thing that we're going to do, and this is how we want to sell to you. Is that okay? Check yes. Here's another way in which we would explicitly like to sell to you. Is that okay? Check yes. I mean, there's going to be, I think almost anyone has run into the little cookie banner. This site uses cookies, you know to to do whatever read more or click okay even that a lot of people are even saying expect not even more of that but things that are much more i don't necessarily want to say intrusive because it is uh it's not about intruding on the process but it is about putting a no a knowledge barrier about what this company is going to do with your data and making sure that you are affirmatively agreeing to it. Yeah, and, and this is if you're keeping uniquely identified information that's tied back to PII, or is this just if, let's say you were even just keeping a cookie, you knew this cookie was coming from some person in Europe that was p- browsing to your website f- from a European location. You don't know if they're a European citizen or not. You So there could be a U.S. person over there on vacation. Are you going to be responsible for asking for explicit permission in that kind of cookie world or only where you're tying it to a specific EU citizen where you have direct knowledge that they are an EU citizen? If it can be used 
if the information can be used to identify an EU citizen, then these sorts of things apply. Now, again, that's a, that's a gray area, whether an anonymous cookie uh, that where you come, come in and you don't have essentially any necessary relationship can be tied in. But I think as soon as you start correlating information across multiple websites or across multiple cookies, as most ad networks do, I think that uh, the chance that you can use it to de-identify data or essentially come to a knowledge of who that EU citizen is, even if it is not exact knowledge, like this is, you know. Someone in Ireland that we believe um, is between the ages of 30 and 45 based and off of Cork. Their, that lives in Cork based off of their shopping habits and they have browsed from that location in Cork for the last three years. So they either live in Ireland, which might make them a pretty good chance to be an Irish citizen or the long-term worker over there. That type of where you start to get to this like belief that someone reasonable would say, yeah, that's probably a European citizen. That's right. You, it doesn't need to be, this is Sean O'Malley. It can be, this is, this is someone who is probably in there they have a right to have their information protected. Yeah, so as a, a business right now, I can go in on a lot of these ad platforms. If I wanted to advertise to people that were aged 30 to 45 that have lived in Cork, Ireland for more than three years, I can select that as a advertising target category across a whole broad number of advertising platforms. Is this going to potentially affect that, or is it going to be on the individual Sean O'Malley's of the world to individually go submit to each of these advertising platforms saying, stop tracking me. So the the default rules under GDPR are opt-in. Yeah. So what if they, but what happens with things before this summer effective date? So if all these platforms have already collected all this information, do they have to go back and get permission or do they get to keep all the information they had and we've now created a, an incumbent wall or barrier for new people? Um, entering the world. You're going to have the same, it doesn't matter if you collected the information beforehand or later, you're going to have the same sorts of, uh, the, the same sorts of requirements in terms of your ability to use or to process that information or use it to target uh, after, as soon as the GDPR comes in and starts to apply. It doesn't matter that you collected it beforehand. There's no grandfathering in of existing of existing data under so the potentially so this potentially creates a, a blank slate then everyone has to as of the effective date of this everyone has to go back and get permission from every eu citizen to use their data for any especially on the marketing side of things for any marketing purposes they're going to have to go back and re-obtain permission from everyone so all of the incumbent advantage is potentially wiped out then as of this date that's the worry for a lot of people so. And one of the things is to realize is that while the GDPR itself has been, the text has been known for a couple of years, some of the ways in which it's going to be enforced have only been made known and developed relatively recently. And there's going to be a lot of interpretation that is going to occur over the first couple of years of its, of its enforcement. So... The question for a lot of companies, particularly those who are doing marketing and, and other sorts of related activities where they are aggregating and using information about people, is 
how much are they going to to be able to really effectively use that information because it could be that what happens is that this throws certain aspects of the marketing back to effectively the 1990s before personalization yeah so if and i pay fairly close attention to this stuff but i don't feel like i've seen any of the big internet advertising companies um, for those out there that don't pay attention to stock filings and SEC filings for for publicly listed companies, they have a whole business disclosure warning section in every quarterly and annual filing where they say, hey, there's a big risk to my European-based revenue for my personalized advertising platform as of this date that GDPR goes into effect. I don't feel like I've seen companies warning about this. So it's interesting to see. I wonder what their their take is, their strategy on on how they believe they're going to mitigate it. Well, the the biggest companies have been working on this for years already, uh, and it's starting to bear fruit. For example, even just I think in the past week or two, uh, Facebook just rolled out and largely influenced by the GDPR, a whole new privacy section of their their account controls, and it is focused upon the ability of each person to know what is being done with their data and to opt in and opt out on various things and in a fairly granular manner and it's a more comprehensive look at the the way in which facebook uses data and including in some of their advertising than has ever really been made made available before yeah google's had the the google privacy manager for individuals to go in um interestingly enough you have to create a google account in order to be able to manage your google privacy um so without a google account i'm not aware of an online way you could manage your privacy with them so i think that i'm not aware of that either uh if i were to to wonder about if I were to think about that it's probably they would argue that if you don't have an account then while there may be incidental information associated with their scraping of the web or other people mentioning you uh, that's actionable through existing uh, existing laws but unless you have some sort of arrangement directly with them they are not directly they, they don't are not identifying you in in such a way that they could be covered by GDPR. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's their rationale, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and this so this is interesting. I guess maybe in, all the incumbents might view that this is going to affect everybody equally. So if people are still going to advertise in Europe, even if the advertising is not as effective as it was before this date, the changes are going to impact everybody equally, and advertisers will continue to buy from the ad platforms at the same dollar amounts so or pound or euro, euro amounts and and if advertisers are still spending the same then there is no risk to any of the ad platforms based off of the changes with GDPR I think that the thing that people is really getting people's attention are the penalties yeah now the penalty provisions for the GDPR are shall we say robust yeah. Uh, Extreme. It is. Uh, it's four percent of worldwide revenue, or I think twenty million euros, whichever is higher. Yeah. Uh, so when you think about that, that's a that's a pretty significant whack at any company of any size. Yeah. 
but if you're if you're a Google who does uh, roughly a hundred billion dollars in revenue these days, or Facebook that's at fifty billion dollars in revenue, that's a fine of four billion dollars. Where I believe Google's already paid a three billion dollar fine to the EU, so maybe again back into normal course of business. Yeah, this this these things are, and that's not a one time fine. You can be fined multiple times. Oh, is there any frequency restriction? And they just find you on Tuesday, find you again on Thursday, or is it annually? I don't know. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that sorts out, too. But it is enough that for companies that are that are doing a lot of business and know that they are international, they have been dealing with this for a long time. I think that there's a large second tier of companies, though, that are are going to be covered by this or more correctly are covered by this and don't really realize it or aren't properly appreciating it or aren't appreciating the risk in not too long as these things go one or more of those companies are going to get whacked and at that point a lot of companies in the united states are going to get scared because they're going to realize that they have exposure that they didn't really properly deal with and mitigate now, this is something that, depending upon what your company is and what your company does, and may be something that you can deal with relatively easily. Uh, I think that for anyone who's listening to this regularly and uh, adopting proper security measures, there is more ceremony associated with, uh, with GDPR compliance than people are probably regularly used to. But that doesn't mean that it is something that people can't deal with, uh, particularly for a lot of these companies. The question is, if you're one of those ones who really is dealing with this data and you don't take proper precautions, it can it can lead to some, some pretty serious issues. Uh, this is a topic that we could go on about for many, many hours. Uh, so it's uh, an interesting one. Um, reach out to us on Facebook, uh, follow us on Twitter, start a conversation and continue it on through there. And uh, we can keep talking about uh, data privacy and maybe we'll have Van back for another program here in the future.